This is the Coin Market Recap Podcast. Hello to you and welcome to the Coin Market Recap Podcast. I'm Connor Sefton with Coin Market Cap's easy to understand look at what's happened in crypto over the past seven days. Make sure you follow our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts to get a new episode every Friday. The markets have been on a white knuckle ride this week. We'll be breaking down what's happened and what might be next. Coin Market Cap's Molly Jane Zuckerman joins us for a look at the biggest headlines, including the A-list celebrity who was apparently running a secret account about non-fungible tokens. We'll find out how NFTs are being used to help people in Afghanistan after the US withdrew its forces and the Taliban took over. And stay tuned for our deep dive into central bank digital currencies too. An expert will join us to explain what they are, which countries are falling behind in the race to launch one, and what it means for Bitcoin. But first, time for a look at how the crypto market is performing. Drumroll, please. Bitcoin is down. That's right, Bitcoin is down. It's been a rather scary week to be a crypto investor. A lot of this can be linked to Evergrande, a massive Chinese company that's in a lot of trouble. The property developer is currently in $300 billion worth of debt. And to make matters worse, it's been struggling to keep up with interest repayments. News of its financial difficulties didn't just spook the crypto world, with stock markets falling sharply too. Some are worried that we could see a repeat of the financial crisis in 2007, which saw the US bank Lehman Brothers collapse. But let's turn our focus back to what's happened with Bitcoin. On Saturday, September the 18th, it was performing really strongly, hitting highs of $48,790. But by Monday, Bitcoin had fallen by more than 12% to $42,760. The worst was yet to come. As China started its business day on Tuesday morning, prices plunged to $40,500 before rebounding slightly. And about 24 hours later, Bitcoin even fell below $40,000. Although prices later recovered, the crypto market was spooked, with some thinking Bitcoin would fall even further. Now, you may be thinking, why would a Chinese company in trouble affect Bitcoin? That's a good question, but what happened with Evergrande has put people off riskier assets, with investors seeking safety in things like gold and US government bonds. History shows that September tends to be a rubbish month for Bitcoin anyway. It's suffered a loss every year since 2017, but things tend to improve in the final quarter from October to December. Bitcoin did enjoy a boost on Wednesday when the US Federal Reserve announced it was holding interest rates near zero, something that's very bad news for savers. And by Thursday, $44,000 became a difficult resistance zone for Bitcoin to pass, with local governments in China told to prepare for Evergrande to collapse. This indicates Beijing may be reluctant to offer a bailout. 
Let's take a look at some other news now. Speculation is growing that the US could enforce regulations on stablecoins, cryptocurrencies that are designed to be pegged to the dollar. Reports suggest the US Treasury is planning to crack down on coins like Tether amid fears they could endanger financial stability. We got a little bit more detail this week when Gary Gensler, the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, gave an interview to the Washington Post. Here's what he said. History tells us Private forms of money don't last long. History tells us that investment contracts outside an investment protection remit, people get hurt. That if we have lending platforms that are outside either the securities uh, uh, perimeter uh, or banking perimeter, that usually they get excess leverage and we have financial stability uh, issues. These stable coins are acting almost like poker chips at the casino right now. Uh, so add to the Wild West analogy. I mean, we've got a lot of casinos here in the Wild West, and the poker chip is these stable coins, you know, at the casino gaming tables. And so I think there's just a lot of uh, kind of warning signs and flashing lights that we might have a spill in L3, and I'd rather get ahead of it. Coinbase has quietly announced that it is abandoning plans to launch a lending product for digital assets. The SEC had threatened to take the exchange to court if Coinbase Lend had gone live. Lend would have allowed users to earn 4% interest on USDC, a stablecoin that's pegged to the US dollar. Instead of sharing the news in a fresh post, Coinbase decided to update a blog that was written all the way back in June. The company said it had taken the difficult decision to drop Lend as it continued to seek regulatory clarity for the crypto industry and discontinued a waiting list that hundreds of thousands of people had signed up for. It's a bit of an embarrassing climb down for Coinbase, which had publicly criticised the SEC for standing in the way of the product launch. The exchange's CEO had even described the regulator's behaviour as sketchy. Now, I'm not here to give you opinions. I'm here to give you news. But this did annoy me a bit. If you were listening last week, you'll remember that OpenSea's head of product, Nate Chastain, resigned. That was after it emerged that he bought NFTs on its marketplace before they were promoted on the homepage, later selling them for a profit. OpenSea CEO Devin Finzer was asked about the incident by Decrypt this week. Here's what he said. I do think there was a misframing as insider trading. You know, we don't view NFTs as financial assets, so you know that that does not apply. That's a very specific term for a very specific mm -hmm. thing. Um, but you know, for us, it was um, uh, an opportunity to really set the standards and policies around what what employees are uh, are able to use as confidential information when they are at OpenSea. Um, and you know, this was a, a relatively small thing that was done by an employee. We took action to um, that employee then resigned um, due to this. Okay, so it wasn't insider trading. It was just someone uh, using insider information to trade NFTs. Right. Now, to be fair, OpenSea is taking action and has said Chastain's actions amounted to a breach of trust. But to me, saying this incident was misframed feels a bit like splitting hers. 
A new study says that a single Bitcoin transaction generates the same amount of electronic waste as throwing two iPhones in the bin. Part of the problem is linked to how Bitcoin miners continually need to upgrade their computer hardware in order to stay profitable. Data from Digiconomist suggests that Bitcoin currently uses as much electricity a year as Poland. A single Bitcoin transaction is also enough to power a typical American household for more than two months. And one transaction also also has a carbon footprint that's equivalent to 1.8 million visa transactions or spending 142,000 hours watching YouTube. Of course, different studies say different things. Separate research released this week by the New York Digital Investment Group suggests Bitcoin will only be responsible for 0.9% of the world's carbon emissions by 2030, even if prices go through the roof. The CEO of one of the world's biggest cinema chains has said he is determined to figure out how to accept Dogecoin. AMC Theatres is going to offer Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin and Bitcoin Cash as payment methods by the end of this year. But some crypto enthusiasts were upset that Doge wasn't on the list. Well, this week, the company's boss held a Twitter poll to ask whether AMC should also allow Doge to be used to buy movie tickets and popcorn. More than 140,000 people voted, and 68% said AMC should definitely make this happen. Meanwhile, 16% said it was a waste of effort. Well, the CEO, Adam Aaron, has now vowed to act on the results and was especially ecstatic that his poll was liked by Elon Musk. This week's Crypto Headlines. So, joining me now for a look at this week's crypto news is CoinMarketCap's very own Molly Jane Zuckerman. Hello, Molly Jane. Hi, thanks for having me on again. Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant to have you with us. Now, before we begin, I just need to play you um, a brief clip from last week's episode. I think this is an over 20-year-old foot massager. This has been in my family for as long as I can remember. (laughs) (laughs) So you have a a very old, very treasured foot massager, um, and uh, you were really enjoying using it, weren't you? I broke it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, we spent so long on this podcast last week talking about this bloody foot massager and you broke it. How did you break it? I broke it. I broke it instantly the minute after the podcast stopped ending. <laughs> I mean, we're not, I instantly broke it. <laughs> we're not going to get any money from home edits now. They're not going to want to pay us. We're just proving their products don't no, work. No, I turned it back on. I was so excited. I was so excited to turn it back on and not have to worry about disrupting the audio. And um, after 30 seconds, it just turned off and never turned on ever again. So, <laughs> Well, that's great. That's great. So now you are foot massageless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I my life is empty. Is everything else okay, though? <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. Good. Good. Well... <laughs> With 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 that with that <laughs> development in your life noted, let's talk about some news. Um, and I thought we'd start with crypto giveaway scams. Now, these have been around forever. Um, and classic format, of course, is you see this scam and it says, "Hey, send Bitcoin to this address, and you'll get twice as much back." 
which sounds obviously too good to be true. Now, there have been two more incidents this week, two pretty high-profile incidents. Molly Jane, what's happened? So the first one um, is Apple. Um, No one actually hacked Apple. Apple did not scam anyone. What happened is some scammers took advantage of the fact that there is an iPhone 13 launching soon. They created a fake version of Apple's website for this launch, and they asked people to send anywhere between 0.1 and 20 Bitcoin to an address, and you would receive twice as much back. Um, The second one, chronologically, is Bitcoin.org. And this was a case of the website itself actually being compromised. So if you went to Bitcoin.org on Thursday morning this week, you would see that the Bitcoin Foundation is excited to give back to the community as long as you sent them Bitcoin to a certain address, and then they would give back by doubling your amount. So same scam, two different websites, but really the same thing at the heart. Yeah, I mean... Both were quite interesting in the fact that they they clearly, like you say, targeted different audiences. I worry that the Apple one could have had the potential to target people who aren't really particularly knowledgeable about crypto, who wanted just to see this live stream of the launch event. In fact, the scammers, what they did to make it seem like there was a video on their website, they just looped like old interviews featuring Tim Cook, who's Apple's CEO. But then with Bitcoin.org, obviously this is a site that is kind of um, a big part of the crypto community. In fact, it's I think it's the first Bitcoin website to ever exist. Um, so you, you would actually think that people who might be visiting Bitcoin, Bitcoin.org would be less susceptible <laughs> um, to uh, fall for it, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I think that if you look at the money, you know, trace the money, trace the blockchain uh, transactions, you'll see that the prices or the amount of money sent is a lot different in both cases. So for the Apple scam, it was almost $70,000. And for Bitcoin.org, it was closer to $17,000. I will say that we don't know how much of this money came from victims and how much of this money potentially came from the hacker sending money to themselves to give the illusion that this is a real thing. Um, As to your point about how the Apple scam could potentially hurt more users, I definitely think that is the case because people in the greater world, you may be shocked, you may be surprised to hear this, but they think that cryptocurrency a lot of the time is a scam. (gasps) No. You know, we know better. (laughs) We know better, Connor. Oh, yes. But crypto kind of has a bad rep. (laughs) I wonder why. The traditional world, for the most part, probably thinks that crypto is a lot of free money, a lot of weird fake internet money. So they go see the Apple event. They see there's free Bitcoin. I think they're more inclined to believe it than someone else has been on crypto Twitter for long enough to see pages and pages and years and years of these giveaway scams um they're not you know the the people new to crypto might think that this actually could be real yeah and we're seeing i mean you've seen here that there was this was a fake apple website that was created in bitcoin.org's case it was actually their website that was targeted and also their website have had a fair amount of issues in recent months they um were targeted by a distributed denial of service attack over the summer. Of course, they had to take down the white paper in the UK. We talked about that on our very first podcast, actually. Um, But in the past, the issues have been that 
video sharing sites and social networks are being used to spread these giveaway scams. And there's exasperation sometimes that these sites, in the view of some, don't do enough to take them down. I remember when YouTube was being sued by Ripple and what was happening there, it was actually quite a nasty, quite a sophisticated scam because these hackers would take control of official accounts belonging to high-profile organisations or individuals, wipe all the videos and then upload their own videos featuring information about these scams. And the people who actually own these accounts were just looking on helplessly because there was nothing they could do. Um, now, Ripple and YouTube did end up reaching a settlement in that particular case. But, you know, we're in a, it's, it's not good. And this carries on happening. And it is a worry. Well, so if I can give you my personal perspective on this, I actually think the fault for why these scams keep happening are crypto projects themselves that give away free money for real in giveaways and airdrops because it's a very unusual marketing technique and I think a very crypto specific one that has become sort of a baseline for every new project. You do an airdrop, you do a giveaway. Um, if you you know follow, like, and subscribe, um, which makes it a lot more believable that this that these giveaways that require you to send money. Um, happen. You know, it's not like the banking industry is giving you an airdrop for following them on Twitter. You know, that's not normal. But crypto has made that normal. Well, you know, banks do some giveaways, at least they do here in the UK. And I guess, I, I don't know, I don't necessarily purchase into that um, comparison simply because, I mean, you can have an airdrop, of course, but that doesn't does that doesn't involve you having to send crypto to an address first, does it? So it doesn't actually involve a monetary contribution on the side of the person who is uh, participating in it. Of course, but that's what I think people are taking it. These scammers are taking advantage of. I'm about to make like a very inaccurate comparison, but it's not like if you're interested in investing in a company there's a bunch of companies in that same market saying, I'll give you these stocks for free if you follow me on Twitter. I'm not trying to say the cryptocurrencies are stocks or securities, but I'm oh, saying steady that now. That's a controversial when there's a bunch comment. of different cryptocurrencies. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm just, I'm saying, I'm neutral on that right oh. now. But it's that, um, you know, if you're trying to... <laughs> Gary Gensler's on the phone. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Tell him I will not be taking his call. Um, but... If you're trying to decide between several different DEX aggregators, you might be more inclined to choose the one that gave you the airdrop of their tokens. Um, this is a normal marketing technique. And so I think that because it's so normal, scammers take advantage. Although the thing is, scammers are going to scam in any industry, no matter what. It's just that because crypto is so known as... I mean, if you remember back when Bitcoin was very first put into the world, there were Bitcoin faucets where I think you could get 250 Bitcoin by doing a series of tasks. Um, because cryptocurrency is all about promoting people to use, for the most part, these tokens, these coins, and see what they're like in real life, um, which is why there's credibility when people want to give you free money. It's the one industry where I'm like, oh, I actually think you do want to give me free money. Moving on then, I think what we're going to talk about next is Tom Brady. Now, of course, he is very successful uh, NFL player, and he said this week that he would love 
to be partially paid in crypto. What do you think of this? So I have several perspectives on this. He didn't say he was getting paid in crypto. He said that he wouldn't mind being paid in some part of Bitcoin, Ethereum, or Solana. I think that at this current time in the crypto space, not very many cryptocurrencies are being used in the exact same way as fiat. For very obvious reasons, the most one is volatility. So if you get your paycheck entirely in Bitcoin and then it goes down 10%, you are making less money than you would have expected. You also could make more money than you would have expected, but it's not something that is predictable. For someone like Tom Brady, I don't really think that he's living paycheck to paycheck. Um, I may be wrong, but I have a hunch that he has a pretty good savings account. So he can take that risk. He could be willing to lose his entire paycheck. For people in the world that maybe need to pay rent with their monthly paycheck, you know, what if it goes to zero? We were we were talking about this either last week or the week before that. It was payday and I get paid in Bitcoin, as I've mentioned before, and the value of the crypto fell by 10% before I could do anything about it. Since then, it actually fell by another 10%. Um, and you're absolutely right. It, I, it's, it's a nerve-wracking experience getting paid in crypto as a salary. Um, and I'm just reading here that his base salary is $9 million next year. So yeah, if he's getting part of his money in crypto, he could probably afford to take that risk. I'd like to think uh -huh. so. <laughs> yeah. Um, so is your view then that the Bitcoin salaries, crypto salaries in general, are not actually a great idea? What do you think? Well, as someone that also receives their <laughs> salary in Bitcoin by choice, <laughs> mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that I am in a sense arguing for the other side yeah. of it. But I think that I've just become so inured to the price volatility that I watch my, you know, portfolio balance go up and down by X amount of dollars every minute, every second. And, I, and I've, I've learned just not to look. Um, I think eventually I'm going to get sick of that, though. I, think it's, I mean, I, I can't stop looking. I mean, actually, I've now um, I've now actually managed to get my Bitcoin payment that went down out and it was on an even keel to where it was. But um, I, I don't know. I found it a distraction to my day. I just carried on looking at this bloody chart and thinking, I, I should be working right now. Um, I don't know. It added a lot of stress <laughs> to my week. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not sure. But you got to have diamond hands. Oh, I'm, I'm not sure I do. Where's your diamond I, hands, Connor? Paper hands. Paper mm. hands probably is the way to describe <laughs> it. There are sites that are popping up which are supporting companies who are wanting to give people the option to receive at least part of their salaries in crypto. And indeed, there are other sports people who have done that. Russell Okung, he um, is getting part of his salary in Bitcoin. Um, about half of it, if I'm mistaken, his overall salary is $13 million. And I think half of it is being paid in Bitcoin. And actually, this started um, late last year. And as a result of that, uh, because Bitcoin went up so much, he ended up being one of the best paid sports stars in the entire country, based on the way that his Bitcoin investment surged towards the end of 2020. 
So on the other hand now, getting paid in a lump sum of cryptocurrency every month is actually following the dollar cost averaging investment trading strategy. This is not trading advice. I cannot legally give anyone investment advice. But the point of this strategy is if you put in a set amount of money to a volatile asset over a period of time, then you kind of cancel out the volatility. So putting in $100 to Bitcoin every month is one way to make sure that you're never buying at the, at the highs and selling at the lows because it cancels itself out. Smooths, smooths the waters over. Yeah, <clears throat> like Mike McGlone said to us uh, last week, things are... Things are volatile right now, but he was of he was of the view that volatility is going to decrease as we go along. He says it's already actually decreasing, and that in four or five years, um, Bitcoin won't fluctuate anywhere near as much um, as it does now. In his view, eh, I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm, I, I can see that happening. You call me when it does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. You see, I've got got a different bit of beef, actually, rather than the volatility issue. And this isn't actually a complaint against Mike McGlone. This is just a complaint generally. Is that, and he was actually quite cautious last week because he was like saying, listen, I think we are going to $100,000. Beyond that, I don't know. Let's just get to $100,000 first. That was his view. But there are, of course, people who are projecting $500,000 Bitcoin. Some even think it will be worth millions and have the same market cap as gold. And I'm like, great, that's all fine and good. But the one thing that people don't talk about is the fact that there's a big difference between Bitcoin going from $5,000 to $50,000 and going from $50,000 to $500,000 because the amount of capital that needs to come into the market to make that happen, in that regard, we will see less volatility because it's going to be so much harder for Bitcoin to double in size or triple in size from where we are now than it was going from a standing point of ten or $15,000. Definitely. And that's why people keep talking about this institutional investment, the influx of institutional investment as being the thing that will drive Bitcoin's price higher, because that's where all of the money is. So our final story then, Snoop Dogg. <laughs> now, this certainly yes. caused a lot of excitement among coin market cappers, including myself. He claimed he's the person who's running a Twitter account that focuses on non-fungible tokens called Cosimo de Medici. Nice Italian accent. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I've been I've been practicing. This 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 account I've been considering doing a doxing or revealing the identity of the person running the Twitter account for some time. And it said, um, dear friends, I've been thinking a lot about this. And I've realized my real life celebrity status may bring welcomed eyeballs to NFT, was his exact quote. So what's your take on this, Molly Jane? Well, (laughs) I was skeptical because I don't like to believe anything online. But my take yesterday was this would be so funny if it was true. Like this would just be like a really pleasant, funny tidbit of crypto news among all of the FUD. Yeah. Um, So in that sense, I wanted it. To be yeah, true. and um, you know, I, I think many people did as well. And it is worth noting that um, Snoop Dogg himself had tweeted from his official account saying that he was the person behind Cosimo de Medici. But the issue is, uh, Vice 
um, has done an article. And bearing in mind, of course, it's the same thing as last week with Walmart and Litecoin. It's been written up um, in all sorts of places. CoinMarketCap did it. I wrote that article and I said he claimed he was behind this account rather than being entirely kind of concrete on it. Nice. Um, oh, yes, you've always got to put in a claim there. But Vice have done an article saying that there's one massive problem with Snoop Dogg's claim. And that's the fact that Cosimo de Medici posted a picture on Twitter of himself with Jason Derulo. Their faces were covered by CryptoPunk avatars. And in this picture, Cosimo de Medici appears to be white. And short. And short. Two big problems. Two big problems. So, (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) you can continue. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And apparently, this is this is Vice's reporting as well. Cosimo and Snoop Dogg have a habit of being on different continents at the same time. On September the fifth, Cosimo tweeted that he was in Italy, including a photo. But on September 4th and 6th, Snoop Dogg was in and around Los Angeles, according to Instagram posts. So clearly someone's having a laugh. So, okay, hold on. (laughs) If we believe that this is a fake sort of, you Mm. know, joke thing, do we believe that Snoop Dogg is in on it and tweeted that to fool people? Or do we believe that Snoop Dogg was hacked, (laughs) you know, and like without his knowledge claimed to be a color I think I think that's less likely simply because we already know that Snoop Dogg is enthusiastic about crypto to some extent isn't he I mean he launched his own NFT collection earlier this year and also um he has described himself as you know being quite enthusiastic about uh, Dogecoin he was involved in Dogecoin earlier this year and he told Vanity Fair when he was asked about Bitcoin, I believe in the technology and I believe in the global connection it creates. So it's hardly like I, this hacking scenario, like it's not as if Snoop Dogg has nothing to do with crypto, has no interest in it whatsoever. And he's just been targeted by some sort of opportunistic NFT nut. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, I don't know. It could be just a very long con and it is Snoop Dogg at the end. What if it's Snoop Dogg's like assistant <laughs> who lives in Italy? <laughs> Does Snoop- <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Does Snoop Dogg have an assistant in Italy? <laughs> Connor, I I really don't know. That was just my first guess. Um, it's I just I really wanted this to be true because the way that Cosomo tweets is so fantastically different from Snoop Dogg's song lyrics, and I just thought. Wouldn't it be so cool if this is the way Snoop Dogg interacted online as opposed to the way he raps? Mm. Um, maybe that should have been the red flag that is like, Molly, if if the, their syntax is so different, maybe it's two different people. I don't know. I, there's, a, there's a small part of me that still thinks it could be, it could be Snoop. Um, I doubt it. I mean, the way they tweet is just entirely different. And, you know, I'm not saying Snoop Dogg isn't involved in this to some extent. He probably is. He must be, but um, he's not Cosimo de Medici, is what I'm saying, I think. Do you want to take a bet on it? Oh, yes. Let's do that. What can I offer that's really low stakes? Because I'm not that confident. <laughs> How about this? If, 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 I'm, if I'm right and Snoop Dogg isn't Cosimo de Medici, you've got to buy me a foot massager. 
Okay. Okay. But if I'm right, you have to buy me one and you have to replace it with like the same one. The twenty year old. The, the home edics one. Okay, okay. Yep. But uh yeah, and I, yeah. I will I will get you one if Snoop Dogg does turn out to completely type in a different way and completely manage to transcend continents and actually is the person with his busy lifestyle who has time to run an NFT account. All right. Let's virtual <laughs> okay. handshake. Virtual handshake. Um and on that note, Molly Jane, thank you very much for your time. I look forward to seeing how this story evolves. So do I, and so do my feet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to you footing the bill. Thank you. Oh, my God. <laughs> now, charities around the world are increasingly allowing donations to be made using cryptocurrencies. Save the Children was one of the first movers in this space, and it's accepted Bitcoin since 2013. Every year, nonprofits around the world also take part in Bitcoin Tuesday, a campaign that encourages people to give their crypto to good causes. And there's been quite a lot of philanthropy around too. In 2017, an anonymous individual who made millions in the early days of crypto set up the Pineapple Fund and gave away more than 5,000 Bitcoin to 60 charities. Now, NFTs are being sold to support thousands of vulnerable people who were trapped in Afghanistan following the Taliban's takeover last month. Joining me now is the aid worker and crypto entrepreneur Amy Carr and Sean, also known as At Real NFT Boy, who created the Safe Passage Collection. Thank you both for joining us. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Pleasure to have you both. So, Amy, I'll start with you. What's the current situation in Afghanistan? Yeah, the current situation is we're still um, needing to evacuate high-risk people um, that are threatened. Um, And whether that's because their lives are in danger or they face imprisonment or, you know, circumstances even beyond that. Um, So really where we're at is the U.S. pulled out on the 31st and a lot of evacuations were not able to be done. So Right now, it's up to organizations and groups to utilize private donations in order to continue those evacuations and keep people safe while they're on the ground, um, given that the situation has been escalating and changing um, almost every day. Mm -hmm. And how are these evacuations taking place? Because, of course, many people who watch the news will have seen um, the scenes at Kabul airport, which um, I believe was later kind of shut off from international travel. I think domestic flights have started since. But how are people moving around? How can people leave the country? Is it normally through um, like a third country, say like Pakistan? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we can't obviously give too many details about that um, just to kind of keep the ground safe. Um, but It is thanks to, you know, the reception of refugees that other countries are providing that's allowing us to continue to evacuate people that um, whose lives are in danger. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of countries that have raised their hand and are accepting individuals and families. And so that's really how we're prioritizing um, getting people out and moving them to safety quickly. Uh, And Sean, tell us about the NFTs. How many are there and and what's the design? Yeah, sure. So uh, we total there's 11,111 NFTs available. And uh, these NFTs are generated on chain. The art kind of 
represents two things. One, it's kind of uh, in the shape of a badge, you know, because when you buy one of these NFTs, um, you're essentially you're contributing to this evacuation effort, right? Um, and in addition to that, uh, you know, it's called safe passage. And when the NFTs are generated, um, they're randomly drawn, if you will, in your browser. And, uh, you know, there's lines across the NFTs and they can go in different patterns and uh, there's you know, kind of different shapes, uh, kind of representing the safe passage uh, from one place to another. Um, and so the kind of the difference between these NFTs and other NFTs is that they, they're going to last as long as Ethereum lasts. So, you know, if that's 100 years, 1,000 years, you know, these NFTs will exist and the art will exist on chain, right? So if you contribute to this cause, you know, you, you, you'll be able to show your great-grandchildren these NFTs, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And Amy, can you just tell us more about, firstly, who you're hoping to help with the funds that are raised? And also, can you walk us through what's going to happen to the ETH that's raised through the sale of this collection? Yeah, so what, what we're hoping is that the community sees this as an opportunity to use um, the technology for good. And we've seen a lot of examples of how much NFTs can sell for. And our hope with this is that people prioritize NFTs that do good and have a direct impact on potentially saving someone's life as they do on, you know, something that's going to be a profile picture. So that's really, I think, one of the goals that or intentions that we we hope we see fulfilled um, throughout the process of this. And directly, the funds are going to keeping people safe while they're on the ground. And that's through safe shelters, keeping the basic needs covered, whether that's food or water or medical while they're um, in a holding pattern, waiting for those options for evacuation. And then you know, it goes into making sure that they can leave the country safely and have their needs fulfilled on the other side as well. And, and so that's where the money goes directly. 100% of it goes to those efforts. And, um, and yeah, so that's, that's how we're prioritizing it. And then, you know, through us and the work we do, we make sure it goes to the right place. And our incredible partner, SOA, which is the Special Operations Association, they're helping us um, with both getting the NFTs up and running and being an incredible partner um, of veterans that are able to utilize, um, we're able to utilize on the ground as well. And what are the benefits of using crypto for fundraising uh, instead of cash? I just really think it, it taps into a whole new community. Um, and since the beginning of time, art and charity have gone together. Um, and so as we're reinventing new formats, I also think it's really good to, to ensure that we're taking along some of the things that were the benefits of the old formats. Um, and so that's really what I hope this, um, you know, people can see the benefit of through that. Uh, and yeah, you mentioned SOA just before there, Amy. I was reading a blog post in which they said that they were going to start accepting crypto donations. And they were saying that they actually had a real difficulty 
um, getting wire transfers to um, arrive on time and banks were closed. And this ultimately actually affected their plans to have a chartered plane evacuate Afghans out of Kabul. And they said that 165 seats that could have gone to people who needed evacuating ended up going unfilled because of an antiquated money system, uh, which is a very powerful point, isn't it, when it comes to the benefits of using crypto. Um, Sean, we've we've seen NFT sales decline in recent weeks and Ether's value's also fallen. Does that leave you worried about the fact that the um, NFTs, when they're sold, could have a sudden drop in value or the proceeds that are generated could have a sudden drop in value? Is that one potential downside when it comes to fundraising in this way? You know, I think I think it could be. Um, you know, I don't see the value dropping so much now that that it will really affect the outcome like obviously we don't know exactly what's going to happen right we know that crypto markets are very volatile and for anyone who's been in the space for a while knows that this is kind of just you know a- another day like there's dips it goes down it goes up you know but what we've seen you know is that it always eventually goes back up as more people get involved but i think yeah we did see uh, a dip you know, with NFTs, I mean, it was NFT euphoria for a couple of months, and then you know it kind of dipped when the when the when the price of ETH dipped, and I think you know people get a little worried. You know, uh, maybe people start uh, liquidating assets, um, and then you know with stuff lately, you know, I think I think fear leads to uh, a lot of bear markets, but um, you know, and it, and it does, I guess, affect. Um, how much you can raise, right? Like uh, if, you know, what what would have happened had we launched this, you know, a month and a half ago, um, you know, during that NFT craze. And it's kind of unfortunate, right? Like like Amy said, these NFTs are really um, going, you know, we're trying to save lives with, with this sale, right? Um, and people are so willing to ape into, you know, the next animal PFP project with like, anonymous developers and like some uh, copy and paste roadmap. Um, and so, you know, we're hoping to get someone that and say, Hey, like uh, these, these NFTs are, are really, uh, in my mind, they're historic, right? Because they're on chain and not, uh, well, firstly, you know, they're going to save lives, but then, you know, the technology behind them is, uh, is, is, you know, second to none. So that's kind of what we're trying to, tell the world, I guess. And Cardano's founder, Charles Hoskinson, said that he thinks crypto will play a larger role in Afghanistan um, now the Taliban's taken over. Uh, Amy, do you agree with this? Yeah, I think it's going to be critical um, to continue to get um, money in people's hands. Um, and that's you know going to help them survive the the poverty that's being forecasted where they're expecting that almost everyone will be experiencing poverty in a very short amount of time. And that has to do with the banks closing, the financial infrastructure collapsing. Um, But people still need money in their hands to buy basic needs and to fulfill those basic needs, especially as winter comes. So when we look at the possibility of crypto, um, it really allows people to have a more direct access uh, to a financial resource that doesn't require the bank being open or doesn't require the same infrastructure 
um, that they're able then to go get their basic needs fulfilled through that. So I, I not only think it's going to play a big role in Afghanistan, but in the refugee community as a whole, when you look at refugees in camps or in the process of immigration, um, they're not able to have bank accounts. And so when you look at a, a market that we really need to service or a group of people that actually need crypto, um, it's those without bank accounts that actually cannot get one. And a lot of those people who need that borderless money are refugees because they're moving to different locations and their funds you know, can't be transferred. So it really is, I think, the promise of crypto and what we're creating in the space um, should always be put through a lens of how is this impacting the people that need it the most? And, and that's really what I, I think we'll be able to utilize or see through developing tools and resources that both give back in a better way um, and make for like a cleaner charity experience, but also um, the way to get money directly in people's hands without the same corruption and different systems that putting cash in people's hands um, has. Um, and Sean, I was really struck by what you were saying before. So I guess this is a question for both of you, but we'll start with Sean first. What's your message for crypto investors who might be listening to this right now? You know, uh, kind of like I said before, um, you know, this project in, in my view is really historic, right? Because we're we're using these NFTs to save lives. And, you know, I'm an avid uh, NFT collector, right? And, and there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, aping into the, to the latest project, um, right? But we've been doing that, you know, and a lot of people have made a lot of money. And now I think it's, 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 it's time to show, you know, now, now is the perfect time to show the world, hey, like crypto is not, you know, for money laundering, you know, there's not uh shadowy super coders you know aren't the only ones behind it like let's show the world that we can really do good with with crypto you know uh and with nfts um uh, and so so that that would be kind of my my message is like you know these these if you're an nft collector like these uh i i can't think of any other nfts that that are solely made to with the purpose of saving lives you know um and like this this is a new technology people are some people are skeptical of it um and i think now is an opportunity to say hey look at this is this is just one of the good things that crypto can do right like um and we've always known that like people in the space have always known you know this is borderless global money that, that can serve um, vulnerable people, you know, Amy, Amy pointed out, you know, refugees, they need access to borderless money. That's what crypto is. Um, you know, it's a global currency. Uh, and, and, and so let's show the world we can, we can raise funds, you know, using NFTs, right. And, and instantly have access to that, to those funds, uh, and, and put them to work. Yeah. I think, um, it's a, I just would echo what Sean said there. Um, we, we have to continue to show that we can do both. Um, and that's really the energy of the community. And there's projects like Crypto for Afghanistan and Crypto Relief for India um, that are coming together to, again, help raise um, money and step in where governments have failed and have failed a lot of people. And so I think the more and more we can continue to legitimize ourselves by not only making companies that 
are able to serve a lot of people, innovate new technology, and create new solutions, um, whether that be for charity or, you know, for a more mainstream audience, but also being able to say, okay, while we're doing this, let's always take a look at how it can be the most impactful um, and serve the most amount of people that need it. And I, I think being able to show those two things um, will only help legitimize the industry and everyone working in it and what we're, what we're ultimately trying to fulfill and build, which is that global borderless transaction system and peer-to-peer payments. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the Safe Passage collection is available at safepassagenft.com. Amy and Sean, thank you very much to both of you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much, Connor. Thank you, Connor. Coin Market Recap. While El Salvador has thrown its arms around Bitcoin, many other countries aren't keen on cryptocurrencies at all. But they are interested in launching digital versions of their own currencies, often referred to as CBDCs, and it's shaping up to be one of the defining issues of the 2020s. Ola Moore is an associate director at Atlantic Council's Geoeconomic Centre, which has built a tracker that shows how countries are progressing in the race to launch a central bank digital currency. Hi, Ola. How are you? Hi, Connor. Doing really well. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you for being with us. I do appreciate your time. So firstly, then, in simple terms, what is a central bank digital currency? So, you know, the... In simple terms, I, I would say the, de- the definition that we go with is CBDC, a central bank digital currency, is a digital payment instrument instrument that's denominated in the national unit of account. So, for example, U.S. dollars, and it is a direct liability of the central bank, whether that's you know the Federal Reserve in the United States or the Bank of England. Mm-hmm. And so, you've launched this interactive database over the summer. It features 81 countries and you say that now more than 90% of the global economy is exploring launching a central bank digital currency or looking into it. So who's ahead and who's behind in the race to launch one? Yeah, that's a, that's a, great, uh, it's a great point. We actually launched a tracker last year, um, initially with 35 countries that were in some stage of exploring, developing, or piloting a CBDC. And then the next edition this year, we've gone up to 81 countries, which really underscores you know, the momentum and trend that more and more central banks are getting into the game um, of, of you know, actively exploring CBDCs. In terms of who's ahead, who's behind, so the Bahamas with the Bahamian cent dollar, and um, the Eastern Caribbean with Dcash are the two only uh, central banks that have launched a CBDC that's actually, um, you know, being used right now. And then there's a number of other banks, for example, most prominently, of course, uh, the People's Bank of China that is piloting a digital UN that is likely uh, ready for sort of prime time around the um, Beijing, Olymp- Beijing Olympics in 2022. And then you have a few other countries. I would I would name Sweden. They are currently piloting a, a CBDC, so the Rix Bank. South Korea is, is fairly far ahead as well. And then, in terms of who's behind, I think you could say that you know the sort of four 
most influential central banks. So that's the the U.S. Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, uh, Bank of England, as well as Bank of Japan. They are all looking into CBDCs. The Fed is probably the the furthest behind, if you will, because the the ECB has already said, okay, we are or we will launch a CBDC sort of by the mid of this decade. The Bank of Japan is doing active research into the CBDC and the Bank of England um, has announced a task force uh, with your treasury department to also explore CBDCs. So if you will, the, the traditional big players among central banks are a little behind the curve uh, when you compare it to some of the other um, central banks in, in, in the way that they're uh, looking at CBDCs. Yes, and Federal Reserve officials have repeatedly kind of expressed scepticism over central bank digital currencies, some questioning um, if they're needed. Now, could the US end up paying a price for being behind in this race to launch a CBDC? Yeah, I, um, I, I think there's a lot of countries and central banks actually looking to the United States for global leadership. And, you know, you've alluded to it. Jerome Powell has, so the Fed chair has said, you know, it's more important to be right than to be first. And I think, you know, we at the Atlantic Council certainly agree with it, especially given the role of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency. But we do have to be um, sort of wary about the potential of a sort of fractured digital currency ecosystem if the Fed waits too long, right? And standards and uh, building without the, the Fed being involved, right? And, and then once, let's say, the Fed go gets into the game later with the US CBDC, other banks have already looked to early movers, including China, in, in terms of how to design a CBDC and what standards to adopt. So I we, we believe even if the, if the U.S. decides not to develop a CBDC, it's, it's incredibly important to be involved in the standard setting through forums like the G20, the Financial Action Task Force, the OECD, to un- ensure that we don't have that fractured digital currency ecosystem, which might also lead to a sort of interoperability problem between uh, emerging uh, CBDCs. And China's said in the past that it wants to achieve controllable anonymity through its central bank digital currency. Should the world be concerned about Beijing's dominance here? And could other central bank digital currencies suffer from a lack of privacy when compared with, say, using banknotes? Yes, I think um, that could be you know, we, we don't fully understand uh, the the digital UN yet in terms of how it will ultimately work. But I think a feature like controllable anonymity is certainly something to be concerned about. And I think I would say if you want in an authoritarian regime, you could design a, a central bank digital currency with no uh, privacy at all, right? But we, we are less concerned about uh, in, in dem- democratic societies, the way uh, the central banks will go through the process. It will always have to include the other parts of government, uh, especially uh, the parliament, you know, treasury department, uh, to ensure 
that you have the appropriate uh, privacy rules in place. In terms of China, we at the Atlantic Council largely see it as a tool of also domestic control. Um, so therefore, uh, this controllable anonymity is a feature of concern. And on a brighter note then, uh, what could the benefits of a central bank digital currency be for everyday consumers, say, in the US or the UK or elsewhere around the world? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. It, it sort of goes to the motivations a little bit, right? Why would countries pursue a CBDC? I think a broad one is generally um, financial inclusion, so bringing more people into the financial system. Even in advanced economies like like the U.S., there there are millions of unbanked and underbanked people. So that is something that a, a CBDC could address. And then you have to kind of go into the different countries because motivations differ between countries. I think in general, um, it could really remake how uh, uh, remittances could be instantaneous between countries. Um, so that is something that, that could really benefit uh, a lot of people. I think um, if you look at, for example, a, a country like Sweden, there it's low cash use. So that's why Sweden is, is want to make the, the Swedish central bank, the Riksbank, wants to make sure um, that it maintains control over the monetary cycle through a digital alternative that people can use. And, you know, you, you can go on and on. I think, you know, resilience of payment infrastructure is another reason to, to, to develop a system that can back up the current system. Um, that's something, for example, that the, the Bank of Israel is looking into. So, so it really depends on the specific country case to, to better understand the mo- motivations for, for a central bank digital currency. Yeah, and financial inclusion is mentioned a lot when it comes to central bank digital currencies. But is there a danger that they could actually end up excluding certain groups of society, that the elderly, those who live in rural areas or people on lower incomes who may rely on fiscal cash? You know, of, of course, there are always risks. Um, and it, it, here, I think it depends a little bit on the design choices for a CBDC. I, it, I think it's important to understand that all of the countries that are developing this, it's, it, it's, it's meant as a complement to cash, right? So cash it will still be available. And most of the um, sort of proof of concepts and pilots that we are aware of there's a, a real focus on offline payment capability, right? So that, and that's, it's also one of the, the key challenges that many of the central banks are facing is how to have a safe, how to ensure sort of a, a safe transaction in a complete offline environment peer to peer. So that should help address some of those concerns, but of course, uh, you know, you, you will likely still have to have access to a, a smartphone or some sort of payment card to to process a payment. So, you know, the, there will have to be an education campaign around it and, and, and to, to explain the new, the new technology. But it could really, it could benefit a lot of people that don't have access to a, a traditional bank account right now. And what about inflation? Because I 
read an article a few years ago and I found it fascinating. It was talking about Japan and the fact that cash in some cases can help keep down inflation because um, the 1,000 yen note in Japan, it was, has been used for years to pay for sandwiches. And as a result of people knowing that they can get their lunch with this banknote, many cafes and restaurants ended up being reluctant to hike the prices. But theoretically, if everything goes digital, there would be less of a barrier for businesses to increase their prices. And that could potentially mean consumers end up paying more. Well, in the case of Japan, it might be uh, it might be uh, some uh, positive given given that they have struggled to to um, accelerate inflation in their economy for two decades. But I think I don't know. I that that's something you know, it, it's hard to guess for me at this point what how businesses would react once they they you know have the ability to to change prices more quickly on the spot um, and how consumers would would react to that I think that's something that as these you know new systems are implemented you know market dynamics will uh, determine and and there will be a period of you know a little bit more trial and error maybe but I I wouldn't want to um, I'm not confident in saying this is this is sort of an inflation driver or it could be an inflation driver. I think it's too early to make that um, judgment. Where do you think the world will be on central bank digital currencies in the next five to ten years? And do you think that their arrival could have a negative impact on cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and stable coins like Tether? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very good question. I would say central bank digital currencies are quite separate from, you know, what you think of traditional cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. On the other hand, we always point to, for example, the emergence of Libra, which is now DM, so Facebook's planned stablecoin, as one of the you know major wake-up moments for central banks that you know, raised fears about monetary sovereignty in a lot of countries and therefore um, created more impetus to develop central bank digital currency. But we think that there is, you know, ample space for both to exist at the same time. So I'm talking about stable coins and central bank digital currencies. And if, you know, looking at the, for example, the US environment, we could see that central bank digital currencies could, could actually provide a really good um, foundation for innovation of the private sector. Um, potentially, there could be licensing agreements where, where some of the payments are, are conducted with private stablecoins. We don't necessarily uh, agree with, with the point that a CBDC will mean the end of stablecoins. I think it could be quite the opposite. And then I think other cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, uh, you know, have other uses, use cases and that appeal to a different audience. So I think they will also not necessarily uh, suffer as a result of, of central bank digital currencies being introduced. Ola Moore, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me. It was a, it was a great pleasure talking to you, Connor. 
And that's it for this week's Coin Market Recap. I'm Connor Sefton, and thank you so much for listening. And just a reminder that this show does not offer financial advice. Please do follow our podcast, and don't forget that we also have a daily newsletter that delivers all of the top stories to your inbox. You can head to coinmarketcap.com forward slash Alexandria2 for easy to understand features on how crypto works. And if you've got any feedback or questions about what we've discussed on the show, our email is podcast at coinmarketcap.com. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Bye bye.